Well, I'm uh, really excited to be doing a talk that I actually wrote quite a while ago now because the Sunday I was planning to do this continuation of our series in Foundations uh, w was the Sunday that Tim was taken ill. And so rather than talking about leadership, I felt like I had to do a bit of leadership. So it's good not just to be theoretical about these things, but to actually implement some of what we believe in terms of leadership. But today I get to talk about leadership, uh, and I'm going to look in the book of Ephesians. Uh, and for me, this is really interesting because I've got all of my talks going back a very long time uh, on my Dropbox and I realized that I have never spoken on leadership uh, publicly in the church here. I've spoken in other places, but I've never spoken on leadership here. And that's not because I've uh, neglected this subject. It's just that most of the talks on leadership have taken place behind closed doors with leaders uh, in our leadership team. It's a big part of what we talk about as a leadership team is leadership, surprisingly. Uh, training leaders and supporting other leaders. So most of it seems to go on behind closed doors. Um, but So it's just really exciting to be able to talk about this publicly. So I want you to know that a lot of what I'm saying, hopefully it's not going to be a complete shock to you because you've experienced leadership in the church here. But a lot of what I'm going to say is stuff we've been working on for at least the last 15 years. And I've got to do this in one talk, so that's really hard for me. Um, so this is what we're going to do. We're going to have a look at Ephesians chapter 4. I'm just going to read the passage to you, make a couple of comments about that. And then I want to talk about five foundational principles of leadership that are inspired by the passage and what we're doing here at Jubilee. So Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 13. Verses 1 to 30 will come up on the screen as well. As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. And make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Because you know there's only one body one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given, just as Christ has apportioned it. And that's why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. Hmm, what does it mean? When he says he ascended, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions. He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. But Paul digresses here. Verse 11, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and the teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ might be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. What a great way to start talking about leadership 
a prisoner of the Lord, live worthy of the calling that you've been uh, assigned by the, by the Father. Um, there's so much to be said. This passage is absolutely packed. It's been a real challenge to try and pick out just a few things. Um, and I can't really do it justice today. But I want to give you a very big picture of what this passage is about, which is essentially is about the role that leaders play in bringing about unity first and maturity in the body of Christ. It's like in Ephesians 4, uh, there are these two great slices of bread. Imagine a, a sandwich. I'm going to make a sandwich. So on one side, at the top side of the passage, it's called unity. That's the first side. Uh, and maturity is the second part of the slice of bread. And then sandwiched right in the middle is the group of leaders that Christ has given to the church. And that says something about their role. Uh, you see, the role of leaders in the church is to pull together under the direction of Christ, equipping the church and bringing it to maturity, bringing everything together to bring us to maturity. So we see that in verse 11, that Christ gave to the church a leadership team of gifts, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, and they all have a job to do. And here's my simple version, that apostles start churches and start things. Uh, prophets, they build up and encourage churches. Evangelists, they populate churches, and pastors care for churches, and teachers teach them. That's the best summary I can come up with. This is the team of leaders given to the church, all of whom are appearing in different measures of gifting and function in every local church that Jesus is building. I really believe that. And of course, these gifts can operate in a more developed way. We talk about the translocal gifts, having a broader equipping function over a number of churches. We see this in the Catholic group of churches that we are part of. But also these gifts should be seen to some degree in every local church because, well, Jesus has given them to the church to bring unity and maturity. And this range of gifts is, is needed in the team for every church to come to that place of unity, maturity, and stability. So I always look for them. And, and I kind of expect to find bits of this gift, these gifts in every local church. And it kind of says what to look for in leaders and what, we, what to look for in the leadership team of a church. I remember some years ago being asked to help a growing local church to appoint some leaders. And the church had been going for quite a few years and was thriving except the fact they just couldn't seem to find and then build together uh, a group of people to form a leadership team. They just really struggled with that. And so on the back of what it said in Ephesians 4, because I went in and said, Lord, how can I help this church to find suddenly a group of leaders? It was this passage that spoke to me, and where it says that Father, Father's given this group of leaders to every church, so that they should be there. So I went in saying, well, where are they then? And I started to look around to see the apostles, pastors, prophets, teachers, evangelists. And what the Holy Spirit said to me, what he said to me is, look to those that are serving the most. That's where they are. That's where you start. Before you even try to work out what their gifts are, look at those that are serving the most. 
So I saw the ones that came first, and I saw the ones that left last. I saw those who sat up and those who sat down. I saw those who were praying with others, those who were caring, those who contributed to the meeting at key moments, serving the body with their encouragements and prayers. And within a few months of visiting this church, I'd identified a group of leaders to work with. And actually, all of the people I spotted at that time did eventually become significant within that local church. Some of them are still there today. Others have moved on and become leaders in their own places. But we can be confident because Jesus has given these gifts to the church. They're there. If you look around our church, you'll see leaders of all shapes and sizes, not necessarily at the front here, but throughout the church who perform these different roles. Starting things, encouraging things, caring for things, building things up, bringing new believers in. So this is how we spot leaders. It's how they serve. That's the first thing. It's one of the first foundational principles of leadership that we've laid in Jubilee. So I just want to take you through these five foundational principles now uh, for leadership in the church that we've certainly adopted. And that the first one is that leaders must be the leading servants of the church. The leading servants. Paul says there in Ephesians 4, 7 that to each one of us grace has been given. And that is a, a, the grace of service in the church. We're to equip the church for works of service. It's all about service. Serving one another. And this comes right from Jesus who tells us that the greatest among you will be your servants. Matthew 23, 11. And Jesus compares it to the worldly attitude to leadership, which is characterized by force of personality and control. <laughs> and he says, you, you won't be like them. Instead, he says, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who leads like the one who serves. Luke 22, 26. Greatness in leadership, according to Jesus, is manifested in service. Wow. I think that's beautiful. Um, it's like our leaders are to be our leading servants. They work harder, longer, meet with more people, carry more responsibility, are models of laying down their lives for other people, sometimes sleepless, sometimes persecuted, sometimes often misunderstood, abused even, as an act of service to one another. Service, that's the first one. And the second principle that we love, we talk about this often, that leaders are the floor, not the ceiling. Leaders are to be the floor, not the ceiling. We often talk about this how elders in particular are, not the are, are the floor, not the ceiling. They're not meant to restrict people, but to equip them. We're not meant to inhibit people, but to train them so that they flourish in the church, becoming all that God has called them to be. And it's a huge responsibility. And sometimes you miss it. Sometimes you get it wrong. My tendency is to over-release. Because that's my heart. I really believe in the gift that's in people. And sometimes I get that wrong. I go too far. 
I'd rather be that way than to control and inhibit and restrict. But, you know, leaders are meant to be the cheerleaders of the church. Can you see me in my pom-poms right now? Uh, so it's this, that you go further. You do better than you would have done without them. That's what leaders are meant to be. That's the service they're meant to play. Good leaders are like good parents. They want their kids to be the best they can be. And, of course, that sometimes means that there needs to be challenge or correction, and none of us like that. But the motivation has got to be one of, I love you enough to tell you this. It's because I love you. I say this to you because I want the best for you to be the best that you can be. And bringing people to a place of maturity sometimes requires a difficult conversation or two along the way. A number of us, including me, are products of these kinds of conversations along the way. And part of being the floor means that leaders are also the stable ground that people can stand on. They can be anchored to. Leaders are meant to provide safety and security in some way. And over the pandemic especially, I often described our role as being like air stewards on a bumpy flight. You know, where, where do you look on a bumpy flight? Where do you look for security and encouragement? If you look and see the air stewards, they're, they're relaxed. I can be relaxed then. And that's what leaders in the church are meant to play that role, that we're meant to be um, okay. And if we're not okay, panic. Um, but I think elders especially have this role in the church. You should be able to rely on their faith. You should be able to rely on their walk with God, on the battles that they've already won, to strengthen and encourage you in times of trouble. So look at their faces on a bumpy flight and feel safe. The third thing is, the third principle is uh, that leaders are meant to function in team. Verse 11 describes these gifts of people to the church of apostle, pastor, prophet, evangelist, teacher. It's basically a description of a leadership team. The church is not an autocracy with one powerful, usually a man, at the center telling everybody what to do. Now, Paul envisages a multi-gifted team of people working together and leading the church. And, you know, the more I've thought about this, the more I've realized that God is all about the team. You know, he even functions in a team himself. It's called the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus, when he comes, he gets his disciples working together in team. Jesus builds the team but he sends them out as partners working in team. And the church follows the same pattern so that leaders are always addressed in the New Testament in the plural, team. And I've often thought how much easier life would be if there wasn't the need for team. Just do it myself and it gets done how I want it and more quickly too. Because building a team takes time. It does. It takes a long time. It's hard work. Everything slows down for team. It has to. Because the relationships are so important in that group of people for it to work properly. And so we've always had this rule 
for our team. And it's one of very few rules, but this is one that we're really <laughs> serious about. Here's the rule. Everything stops for relationships. Everything stops for relationship. The work comes last. Relationship comes first. So if there's ever a problem in the team, we call a timeout and everything stops until we're sorted, until we're right with one another, until we're helping and loving one another. And I don't just mean problems in the team. It's also problems that people in the team are going through because we're humans too, guys. And sometimes we go through hard things and difficult things, and so everything stops for the team, for that person. And we spend time saying, how are you? What's going on? And we pray with one another and stand with one another. And in fact, one of the commonest questions we ask in our leadership team meetings is, how's it going with you? What's going on with you right now? And sometimes that will take over the whole evening. So we don't get any work done, work, because that is more important. The agenda goes out the window because relationship is more important. And team was God's idea, and a team that works together is a powerful force. And of course, where there's unity, God commands a blessing. I think, I think that's why it's often so hard to build team, there's a battle for team. You know, Satan hates team. He loves it when there's disunity. Because in unity, there's an incredible blessing for that team, but also for the church that that team leads. And so we think it's worth it, and this is how we're determined to function in every area of the church, in team. But pray for us. Pray for this team. Pray for all the teams across the church. Uh, pray that we'll continue to grow good relationships and functioning team across the church. I really believe as well that what happens in the leadership team filters out, even if it's unconscious. I don't even know how that works, but if things are good in the team, it means that things are usually good in the church too. I've seen it time and time again. So pray for our protection. Uh, pray for the team, I do believe. And fourthly, uh, fourth principle, that leaders have different gifts and different is good. Some are more different than others. Um, we don't all collect spiders, but some do. Verse 7, but to each one grace has been given. Some of us need more grace than others. Um, I'm just joking. Um, no, I'm not. Uh, so, some <laughs> some uh, need to function more apostolically. They need to be released to do that. Some of us are always wanting to start something new, and others are saying, no, we don't need to start anything new right now. We're doing okay with what we're doing. Some prophetically, they're always five years ahead of everybody else at least, and you're kind of bringing them back, saying, hold on, we're, we're today. And some are very pastoral. Uh, and and we, so we need to learn how to recognize and release one another in our various gifts and ways of doing things. So one of the things I love asking is, what are you gifted at? What do you really enjoy doing? Because that's quite often what you're gifted at. Did you know that? When I do this, do you remember Chariots of Fire? It says, when I run, I feel his pleasure. That's doing what you're gifted at. That's doing what you've been called to do. So what makes you tick? 
there's nothing more interesting than sharing our passions with one another. Years ago, I was influenced quite strongly by a secular leadership development tool called Strength Finder, uh, which is kind of like the parable of the talents, and it's, it's built around the idea that someone can only be responsible for what uh, each of us have done with the gifts that we have. You can't be responsible for what you're not gifted in. Uh, and this tool is one of the most positive things that you can do with somebody because it focused almost entirely on the person's ability, not on their weakness, which is so contrary to so many other leadership tools. Anybody ever got depressed by leadership tools and trying to work on your weaknesses all the time? It, it's depressing. We're not made that way. I hadn't realized how much using this emphasis on strengths had influenced me until I did a review with one Rachel Dale a while ago to help her interview preparation for a new job, which she got, by the way. Uh, but it was what she said after I did the review that really stood out for me. She said, now I know why I love Jubilee so much. She said, this thinking of strengths has become so embedded in the culture has it? I said, what do you mean by that? She said, well, since I've been part of this church, people have only asked me about what I like doing and what am I good at instead of what am I weak at. She said, that's really different. Now I know why. I love this. And I mean, I, I think that's important. That really impacted me. What are you good at? What do you enjoy doing? Do that. <laughs> In fact, do more of that. That's the definition of success. Do what you're good at more. Um, I think I got this from Billy Graham. Uh, he wrote a book on leadership. He only wrote one, and I can't remember its title, and I can't find it. Um, but he talked about the difference between a team that's a jazz band and an orchestra. And I've always liked the idea of a leadership team being a jazz band. You see, in an orchestra, what you get is you get somebody at the front who stands there and tells everybody what to do. And it's all about unison, which is a kind of a unity, except that it's about conformity. You have to do exactly what the man at the front tells you to do. Jazz bands are a whole different kettle of fish. There isn't somebody standing at the front. In fact, everybody has their own instrument to play. And each instrument takes their turn in playing it. Each musician takes a lead according to their part, according to their gift. And ugh, that just sounded pretty funky to me. And I thought, that's what we're going for as a team. We're trying to make a jazz band where each leader plays their own part and takes the lead according to their gift. And so we're shaped more around the passion or gift of each leader. And so when Simon said, uh, upon the death of Her Majesty the Queen, even though I was scheduled to speak, <coughs> I didn't want to do a talk about the Queen, but Simon says, I've got something. And Simon was the one that took the lead there, and it was magnificent uh, what he brought. Uh, I gave way to the sound of his instrument because that's what was needed that week, not mine. When there is information to be communicated, it's Jody. 
so much clearer than Paul or Rob doing it, especially. <laughs> um, although Simon does a pretty good job. If it's evangelistic, Paul fights all of us. And he's only small, but he can be mean. Uh, <laughs> and Becky is increasingly leading the team in this emphasis on prayer at the moment. We see that anointing on her, that passion. I want to release her for that. She's helping us uh, with this saturation in prayer. And then Tom, he's all about the young people. When are the young people, we need to give them more opportunity. We need to develop them. We need to see them coming through. The next generation. Who is the next generation? That's Tom's constant theme. Um, so what is your gifting? And what are you anointed for? Recognize and release. Not just within our team, but across the church. That's the flavor. The leadership flavor is what flavors the whole church. Can I just say at this point, I wanted to put this in somewhere. I couldn't think where it came in. But I want to just say, this flavor is one of the reasons why I hardly ever tell people what to do. And I frustrate you with that. I really genuinely want to know what God is saying to you. And so that you do that. Not because I've told you to do it. Or any other leader has told you to do it. We genuinely want to see people released in their passions and their gifting. Ooh. So somebody once said to me, it's about accountability. What is your ability? That's what you need to give account for. Not what can you not do very well. And finally, I just want to say that we don't really have a clue what we're doing. I love how Paul introduces this chapter with be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love, because we really haven't a clue what we're doing. Um, he must have been thinking about leaders that he was about to address. But you know, leaders don't know everything, and we shouldn't even pretend that we do. And in my view, it's quite acceptable, even preferable, to just be honest about that, because most of you know that we don't know everything anyway. And certainly how I started out on my leadership journey when I discovered the fact for myself that I didn't have a clue about what I was doing or how I was going to do it or how we would ever get to what I knew God had called us to do. And so in the early days, I would say it quite openly. It was even part of my vision talk. Guys... That's kind of what I'm feeling, but I don't really have a clue what I'm doing, so I hope that's okay. <laughs> and people still kept coming, so it's probably a good thing. And then a few years ago, the thought came to me that perhaps it was wrong for me to keep saying that. I don't really have a clue what I'm doing, because I was getting a little bit more confident. Um, I'm growing a bit in my gift. And perhaps I was even undermining my gift by saying that, or my identity in Christ by saying by putting myself down or appearing to do that. And so I stopped saying it. And then after a couple of months, I started to lose some of my joy, especially in leadership, because it started to become a task instead of a vibrant part of my relationship with God, where I'd say to him, God, what do you want me to do today? 
Now, one morning, I didn't even want to go to church, uh, which is very rare for me because I usually can't wait to be with you guys. I mean that genuinely. Uh, and so it was in some desperation, really, that I prayed on that morning, wondering what on earth I was going to do because I didn't want to go to church and I was meant to be preaching that morning. I didn't want to do it. And then God spoke to me very quietly. He said, I liked it when you said you didn't know what you were doing. And he went on to say, the thought that came to you didn't come from me. You've believed a lie. I never said that. He said, you've begun to become too confident in your own ability, and I want my church back. Whoa. <laughs> you can have it, Lord. It was just after this, um, I read the words of Jesus who said after one of the most amazing miracles in the New Testament that he ever performed, that the son can do nothing of himself. He can only do what he sees the father doing. And I thought, well, if that's good enough for Jesus, then who am I to say anything different? So this has become one of the things that we say over and over again. I don't know if you've picked it up yet, if you've been in the church. Apparently, I say it a lot in the office. Tom's picked me up on it. So you, you say that a lot, you know. I said, well, I genuinely mean it. I only want to do what I see the Father doing. And that is my heart. That's our heart. It's become one of our leadership team motives, motos, mottos. We hardly know what we're doing. We're just trying to see what the Father is doing. So those are the five leadership principles that we're building to. I hope that helps you and encourages you. Um, let me just finish up by saying this, that leaders are the leading servants of the church. And they're people that are going to cheer you on and push you on go further than you've gone before. That's the job of leaders. We're all gifted differently. We're uniquely talented in different ways, celebrating those differences. I like different. We work very hard on the relationships that make that possible, that make that team possible. But we don't really have a clue what we're doing. So please, will you pray for us? Yeah, so Father, we thank you for your work amongst us this morning. We give you thanks for this team. We love them. We love the way that they serve us, that they model that servanthood to us, and the way they want to see that they see the best in us, Lord. Thank you for them pulling out the gold in all of us. Father, we uh, give this, uh, this week to you, and we pray you go ahead of us into our weeks, whatever they look like, and uh, your Holy Spirit will accompany us. And Father, we'll see amazing things happen this week because you're amongst us. In Jesus' name.